Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we are discussing I Shall Wear Midnight by Terry Pratchett, the fanfic In Which Letty Makes Demands by Rivka, and the film Practical Magic. Thrice the brindled cat hath mewed. Thrice and once the hedge pig whined. The harpier cries, tis time, tis time! Yeah, time for episode 27. Woo. I'm not a lady, I'm a witch. I'm Alex. <laughs> I'm Freya. I'm Macy. We are three red-headed fantasy authors. And in case it wasn't obvious yet, we're talking about witches today. But yes. uh, here's a fun bit of trivia. We have to re- re-record this episode because the first time we recorded yes. it, it was haunted. So for a given uh, value of fun. Yes, uh, fun is one of the words. So listen, um, this is episode 27. This is the first of our second year. And we have mm. managed to escape completely destroying an episode for like for this long. a year, you guys. Yeah, I'm really proud of us. We're a proper grown-up podcast now. Yeah, like, yeah. Given the proportion of disaster bisexuals that inhabit this podcast. And disaster non-binary. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> fair. That's fair. <laughs> we 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 advocate for the rights of all to be as disastrous as they desire. But please, um, which episode do not curse us a second time. We have learned our lessons. We respect your powers. Yeah, so please, witches episode, be kind to us. Let us uh, get this one in the can. The alien fucking episode was actually supposed to be the first episode of our second yes. year. Witches episode was supposed to be last week. Uh, but yeah, we're just going to do our best uh, and get through this with the power of friendship. I feel like the um, alien fucking is one half of our brand, mm-hmm. but like feminist power is another half of our brand and Absolutely. equally representative. Absolutely. I think that, like, of the, the these two episodes, I think that they were a good pair to switch. I think it worked pretty well. Like, they, they go nicely <laughs> together, alien fucking and witches. I mean, witches do a lot of, like, fucking of strange things. Anyway. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so before we get on to that, I'm trying to jump right ahead into, like, talking about stuff. Uh, so before we get into that, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I am doing an ongoing trek through the Volkosigan saga. I am at a pause while the three next books wing their way to me across the ocean because they are surprisingly hard to get hold of in Australia. Hmm. I also just finished reading Lethal White, which is the fourth book in the Strike mystery series by Robert Galbraith, who is also known as J.K. Rowling. Uh, It's a really, Hmm. really good fantasy series. I think J.K. Rowling's deep cynicism about human nature comes through really well when she's writing mysteries in contemporary London and this one had like a brief trek out to a depressing manor house. And we know I love manor houses. <laughs> you do, do love a manor house. <laughs> I do. And I've just started an anthology called the Underwater Ballroom Society, which is a collection <laughs> of short stories which are tied together by the theme of an underwater ballroom. And it can be interpreted in many different ways. So far, I've read a few of the stories from it and they're all really good. Nice. That's a very interesting and specific prompt. I I'm say, not quite my... sure where it came from. I think... Stephanie Burgess is, was the one who put it together. So I'm assuming that there was a conversation that was had at some point where someone said, this is a really cool idea. And then they just got a whole lot of people to write stories for it. It's great. I'm really, really interesting to see how different people interpret the idea. In, in fairness, I did just sell the reprint of my Airship Pirate Wizards 
anthology story, which is an equally specific mm. and uh, entertaining <laughs> prompt. Yeah, yes, yeah. airship but- pirate wizards, I think, is even more specific. That's <laughs> so niche. It was fun, and it's a great little anthology um, with a really cool illustration that I am still in awe of. But I have been reading all sorts of things because I had four days off over the New Year's break, and I had just finished my edits, so I decided to read a book a day. Nice. Because that's how I roll. And there are two that I wanted to mention here. The first one, I think I'm going to shoehorn into this episode you guys, so be ready for that. But it's called Wild Beauty by Anna-Marie McLemore, and it is a young adult magical realism uh, book that I would describe as a much queerer practical magic, and it's full of uh, brujas and flower magic and families and sisters and bisexuality and all sorts of queerness, and I really enjoyed it and highly recommend it. All the things you love. That sounds great. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the other book that I finished finally, which Freya like thrust into my hands in August last year, was Francis Harding's The Lie Tree, which is oh, it's it is, so good. It's it is a Macy book. It's it's somewhat less than her other one actually, but Francis Harding is this gem of an author that I can't believe I've missed for this long. She writes this creepy atmosphere and these insightful books about young girls. And I just want to devour everything she creates. This one particularly is about Victorian natural historians and about the damage that playing along with society does to intelligent women in that setting. Mm. She does really good adults from the point of view of children who are nasty in, or at least mediocre in grubby ways that are really well observed, I think. I love her nasty, nasty children. I a couple weeks ago I finished my manuscript. I handed Ooh. it in to my agent and my beta readers, which has been so exciting and terrifying. Uh, I've started getting feedback on it, uh, but it means that I've had so much time to read things. <laughs> uh, I read *Flight of the Magpies* by K.J. Charles, which was incredible. It was the last book of the series. It's like a romance fantasy series uh, if you're into that. And then I have three really big wrecks for you, dear listeners. I want you to go immediately and read all of these. <laughs> Uh, The first one is a short story, Monologue by an Unnamed Mage, recorded at the brink of the end by Cassandra Kaw, which is published by Uncanny Magazine. It is available to read for free on the internet right now, and it is so good. It is like this achingly lyrical, gorgeous prose that just absolutely ripped my heart out of my chest and stomped on it. Uh, so, so good. I think that was the one that I read and I was like, I'm immediately throwing this at Alex because oh, yeah. this is Alex. This is 100% all of Alex's bullshit right here. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the second thing uh, was a story on Archive of Our Own, an original piece of fiction uh, by our good friend Emily and Rose called Darling and the Cinderella Club. This was also so fucking good. Also tore my heart out of my chest and stomped on it. And then the final thing was a romance novel that I just finished reading today, like two hours ago, called hmm. For Real by Alexis Hall, which is... This I read that really, last really, year. It's so good. Oh, my God. Uh, it's this really <laughs> sweet uh, gay romance with zero plot whatsoever. It's just feelings all the way down, which is my jam. I had huge tolerance for that. That was great. Uh, <laughs> and the cool thing about this is that it explores a BDSM kink relationship in a really sophisticated and nuanced kind of way, more so than I generally see 
in pretty much any fiction, including fanfic. Like it's huh. it addressed a lot of the the different kinds of uh, dynamics that you can have, and uh, there is an, a significant age difference in this this uh, book, but that also is like interrogated and addressed. Really, very sweet, and it choked me up uh, several times, and I oh. had a huge smile. Like I was smiling so much through this book that my face was getting sore and I was like I have to stop I was like massaging my face going like I have to stop this um yeah so good that's a great way of assessing a book how sore your smile muscles by the end yes is that a thing I mm. I also had a sore face when I was reading when I was reading uh Freya's Freya's book the first one uh, sword on two fingers that also made my face sore from smiling I remember yeah. that because that was the first thing you told me like you came back to me and said my face hurts and I was like, <laughs> my what, face does, hurts. what does this mean but it was complimentary <laughs> <laughs> and a, a brief reminder for you listeners as you would have heard us mention last episode we are eligible for the best fan cast in the Hugos the Hugo ballot nominations are still open at the moment so consider putting us on your ballot as well as all the other amazing stories and pieces of media that you encountered last year there are so many good things from last year i'm gonna have trouble picking my faves big mood big mood big mood uh also one more thing before we go on uh we are talking in this episode about witches which means that we're going to be talking a lot about women uh as the non-binary person on this podcast i have been uh unanimously voted to be the person to do a notable about gender uh whenever we say women we mean women of all sorts if you identify to any uh degree as a woman we mean you but for the sake of simplicity we will probably just be saying women in this episode rather than women and women aligned persons etc etc yes (laughs) sorry i just had a the words female presenting nipples just like shave into my brain and wouldn't go away you know i had just excised that from my brain no no thanks it's back now welcome audience welcome listeners darling listeners to this episode which is not despite all appearances about female presenting nipples no not not at all but it is now thanks Freya what's our first temple Macy for god's sake so when we first bandied around the idea of doing an episode about witches quite a while ago I think this was the first thing that came to my mind was Terry Pratchett's witches I think that this is a sequence of books that I wish to thrust in the face of anybody who claims that men can't write women Mm -hmm. because Pratchett understand and it took him a while to get to that point he didn't yes. start the tiffany aching books which are the the books that i shall wear midnight is in yeah. mm-hmm. till quite a way in the series and you can see the sparks of it when he's talk when he writes about the older witches the yes. lanker witches some earlier in the series but i think he doesn't quite nail it until he's writing Absolutely. for young people and young women in particular and i think specifically he must be writing for his own daughter interesting i would believe that and i think that he must be like listening to his daughter as she talks about her young woman kind of experiences and incorporating them i don't know i'm speculating but (laughs) so the book that we specifically chose to represent the concept of witches in pratchett here is i shall wear midnight which is not the last tiffany aching book but in some ways is tiffany's graduation from child to adult Mm -hmm. i would say And this is a book about coming to terms with the power that you wield and the responsibilities that you have because of it, but also the things that you can achieve, I think. 
And it's also a lot about communities of women and communities of witches. Mm -hmm. And how different those can be. One of the things, I was just rereading the earlier chapters to kind of refresh this in my mind. And I was reading the part about Tiffany's friend who is a pig witch. Oh, yes. Yes. Petulia? And it's She's great. Petulia, yes. I love And that. it was delightful because... She was such a different witch to Tiffany, and so is Letitia in the end, by the end of the book, is another different witch again. And there are so many ways to wield this type of power, but they're kind of all united. In Pratchett's worldview, the witch's power is united by this theory of headology. Yes. Do you want to explain to us a little bit of what headology is for anyone who has not read uh, Pratchett? So now I'm trying to figure out a good way to frame headology. It's sort of like psychology, right? I mean, like it's using people's own brains and thoughts and preconceptions in order to work the magic. Like you can convince them that their pain has gone by doing this headology thing. I would actually, now I'm thinking about it, I would frame it in similar terms to emotional labor and emotional intelligence. Oh, interesting. Right? I think that the, the core of headology is seeing what is really there and letting go of your own preconceptions to try to understand other people and how they got to where they're at, but in this kind of radical empathy way. Mm. I would disagree. See, to me, when, whenever they say mm -hmm. headology in the books... It's more like the mechanism by which the witches in Pratchett affect change on people, but by using hmm. the inherent qualities of those people. And when you're talking about emotional labor, I think that covers a different part of the sphere of work that Pratchett assigns to women, which is more about, or assigns to witches rather, which is more about doing the grubby everyday jobs that other people don't want to do. But to me, that doesn't fall under the hedology. That's more to do with providing service than using and wielding power. I could see that. I'm not so sure that I agree that, for example, clipping someone's toenails because they need you to falls under emotional labor. But I think that you're right that they're not a perfect fit. Hedology, no, you're right. Hedology is more about having and exercising power yeah. than it is about accepting things into yourself, I think. Yeah, yes. it's about using, yeah. like, exactly as, as Alex said, it's about things like the placebo effect. About yes. using yeah, people's exactly. assumptions and having an understanding of human nature that allows you to do things that are then interpreted as magic. Yes. It's first sight and second thoughts, as Tiffany loves to phrase it. Yeah. And there's this wonderful, just to sort of uh, link the headology and the emotional labor part of being a witch, there's this amazing quote, uh, feed them as is hungry, clothe them as is naked, speak up for them as has no voices, grasp for them as can't bend, reach for them as can't stretch, and wipe for them as can't twist. And sometimes you get a good day and that makes up for all the bad days. And just for a moment, you hear the world turning. And it really is about having both power and responsibility knitted yes. tightly together. That if you have the power to know people, to understand people, and to exert power over them, then you have this responsibility on the other side of the coin. Because if you mm -hmm. don't have the responsibility and the service, then it becomes just power for your own gain. And Pratchett has a lot to say about the danger of what happens when witches, or by which he sort of means almost anyone, um, is more about power in isolation without the service component. And I think that one of the things that this book digs into was that... Women don't get to have power in a static way. Women have to keep 
strengthening the basis of their power because many people will question it otherwise. Uh, people in that, throughout this book, the thread of this book is that there is an ancient evil underlying um, witches that will rear its head whenever a young witch who looks to be particularly powerful starts to come into her own and it will poison the thoughts of her community and poison the thoughts of those around her to see her as this figure of a wicked witch. And I think that it's something that any powerful woman in any field kind of relates to. Oh yeah, for sure. You get too big for your britches. I mean, look at Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez right now in the media. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> wow. Jesus. <laughs> right? Yeah. And the witch series, especially the Tiffany books, does a lot. You were saying about the variety of the types of women who are mm -hmm. witches and the types of witches there are. And one of the things that Pratchett does really well is shows how the older witches, the established ones, the different ways in which they keep those roots in their community and maintain right. the goodwill of their community. Like it was Miss Treason, I think, in, in um, Wintersmith, which is the book that mm -hmm. comes before this one, who introduces Tiffany to the idea of boffo which is very headology. It's about using the trappings of witchcraft and witchhood, like uh, you know, fake warts on your nose and a big pointy hat and you know, <laughs> a skull that is made of plastic and telling everyone that you keep a demon chained up in your cellar in order to fall slightly into the pattern that they expect of a witch right. in order to maintain the respect that you deserve. Yeah, it's taking oh, advantage of the story that they're telling. Yes, absolutely. And I think maybe that gets at the heart of what I'm trying to get at, which is that there are so few accepted stories of female authority mm, Yes, that you have to invent your own and you have to walk a tightrope every day to try to maintain that story. Mm. And Aisha Web Midnight is about the stories around witches being exactly on that tightrope. You're either doing someone who's doing what is right for the community or you are the thing to be feared. And Tiffany in this book has a very telling moment where someone is afraid of her and what she could do because she's the wicked witch mm -hmm. and she kind of drives home the point that if they don't let her out of the prison there's going to be nobody to go and you know look after his mum who needs a dressing changed on her leg and sort right. of pointing out that if you put someone in the wicked witch box then you're cutting yourself off from any benefit that they could yeah. be having for their community. Talking of community I want to address specifically a parallel to communities of women specifically and mm -hmm. friendship uh like the way that the this book approaches tiffany's uh relationships to the women around her like she starts out feeling a lot of rivalry towards the women around mm -hmm. her there's a a young woman who's sort of having a relationship with this boy that tiffany liked there's uh this young woman's mother uh and tiffany starts out thinking a lot of like mean petty thoughts about them and mm -hmm. like you can you can understand why she's doing it uh but it's so fascinating and so touching to watch uh pratchett shape that and shift it and show tiffany's kind of changing perceptions as she learns that even these two people who she started out actually like hating and really really like actively disliking right. are valuable powerful women in the community who she ends up having at least at least a minimum level of like respect uh as members of her female community uh you're right. it's so fascinating so good. i think you're right you can see her unlearning something that she's internalized which is something yes. that a lot of women i think unfortunately internalize which is that there can be only one 
mm-hmm. that because, I had to do it. <laughs> because women are mar- marginalized, if I'm a powerful woman, there can't be any others in my sphere because there'll be less power for me. And you right. can see the, t- the zero sum game. Yeah, you can see her thinking about it as a zero sum game, which isn't helped by the fact that most of the witches she's come across, even though there is a community, have all been very isolated practitioners. Mm-hmm. And throughout the course of this book, she's learning about it's much more of a focus on the strength of the ties between people and the ties between the witches. I think that I would say that to me, even in the beginning of this book, Tiffany is conscious that she is one of the most isolated witches. Um, so Pratchett's other setting of witches who focus, who function as something like mentors to Tiffany, um, Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax and Magrat are still present in this book and very much do operate as a triumvirate. But Tiffany has never had anybody because her grandmother, Granny Aking, was such a powerful witch that she basically scared everybody else who could have been a community away. Mm -hmm. And now Tiffany is left to try to fill this void. And I was reading the early chapter about Tiffany dealing with the aftermath of a father who beat his 13-year-old daughter so badly that she lost her pregnancy. And I'm thinking, Tiffany's 15. And this is what she is, this is the problem she is expected to solve for her community on her own. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. But speaking of communities of women overcoming gross men. Yes, there is a second tentpole. There are always more tentpoles. There's always more tentpoles. Uh, well, no, generally there's three tentpoles. Uh, so the second tentpole is the uh, movie Practical Magic, starring Nicole Kidman and uh, Sandra Bullock. And I think it was in like 1998 or so. It's very 90s. Very 90s. But it holds up. It's so good. It's so much better for being very 90s than Groundhog Day was. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So Practical <laughs> Magic is about this uh, family of witches, uh, the Owens uh, witches, and they have a curse on them, which is that they are basically unlucky in love. If they fall in love with a man, he will die. Uh, mm-hmm. And so every generation, there are two sisters and one of them falls in love with a man and dies. And... The man dies, not the sister. Yes, the man dies. The man dies. We don't care about the men. Um, so <laughs> oh. in in this uh, movie, this is about them sort of breaking the curse and mm-hmm. um, also very, very much about communities of women supporting each other, specifically against men who are committing domestic abuse and violence against them. Right. Uh, and so if you do watch this movie, just be aware that there are some dark darker themes in it. Uh, and but it's it's so sensitively handled and so inspiring to watch these women come together to protect one of their own, even in a community where most of the people in the community had seen them as evil witches and had not wanted right. anything to do with them. But when it was time to do the work and to show up and support the women who needed it, they did. So specifically, the family of witches uh, for the ending scene, they raise the man who they kill um, oh, yeah. and have to deal with him as like a revenant monster thing. Demon, revenant, zombie Demon, thing. Demon, revenant, yeah. So uh, they need... 13 women, I want to say it was, to perform the final ritual. And they used the school phone tree and all of the women in the community who previously had seen them as these like wicked, um, outside of the community witches come together in the end. And it's a really beautiful 
piece of magic to have all of these different women holding hands and wielding power as one. Yeah, and very yeah. specifically wielding power to break the influence of an evil man on a woman. Mm -hmm. I think the arc of Nicole Kidman's character is really interesting in, in this movie because you can see her, you know, she grows up, she wants to go away and see the world, she doesn't want any of this curse and witchcraft stuff. But looking at it from another perspective, you can see that she's on one level very much decided that she's going to escape the curse by not not necessarily not believing in love. You can tell she's kind of searching for love on one level, but mm -hmm. she falls into a relationship with someone who she doesn't love and who doesn't love her. And you can see that part of her is thinking of it as the way of escaping the pattern that's happened. So it is quite ironic that he ends up dying anyway. Yeah. But then you see it's not just that they raise him, it's that then his spirit possesses her. And it's about that influence that they're trying to escape. Right. And that was something that I was just realizing right now is that if you look at the final sequence from when this man, who also, by the way, is a serial killer, surprise, <laughs> um, possesses Nicole Kidman's character, it's very directly a metaphor for an abusive relationship in which the partner doesn't believe is being gaslit. Mm -hmm. And her community has to come together to say, no, he's not good for you. You need to break free of him. But he's still got his hooks into her mind. And it's I think that's very directly what they were doing with that possession. And the whole idea of that curse in Practical Magic and part of the reason that the community hates them is this idea that the witches are killing our men. And, mm -hmm. you know, the witches... Or stealing our men. Well, stealing them and then they're going to die. Yeah. And even the, like the source of that evil spirit in I Shall Wear Midnight is a man who, um, you know, goes, essentially turns evil because he can't deal with his attraction to a witch. And you see that in a lot of different media. Like I think you think of Esmeralda and Frollo in Hunchback of Notre yes. Dame. I'm even thinking that um, Good Omens kind of satirizes that dynamic as well with the witch hunter uh, and the medium and this idea that there's something about witches that is inherently seductive but also destructive to whoever it is that is drawn in by them. Oh, absolutely. P powerful women don't maintain relationships. I think that's what we see again and again. Like, you see this in... Even in Pratchett, the one witch who's maintained a marriage has to do so with a king who can be equal to her power. Well, then you have Nanny Og, who's had like four husbands and a million children. Yes, but she children. burns through them. Yes, exactly. They're, they're disposable. Well, yeah, witches don't get to have partners. And this is something that um, the Wild Beauty touches on as well. The Bruja sisters, their partners are cursed to die. Um, and they have, very directly related to practical magic, they have five cousins in each, in each generation. And their menfolk either have to be driven off or they will die. But that book um, tackles one of the biggest holes in practical magic for me, which was that there are never any women who are the loved ones of the witches, um, by having all five sisters in this family fall in love with the same girl. God, this is so much your book. <laughs> like this, this book was written specifically for Macy. And hey, that the girl turns out to be slightly genderqueer, so you might have fun with it as well. And I wonder, there's something in these stories about you know you can't have a partner, men will be scared away. It just, it honestly, it just makes me feel like 
it's got its roots in something very nasty, this idea that men don't want to be in a relationship with someone who's basically got more power than them. Mm-hmm. It, it's the whole, like, you can't out-earn your male partner, right? Yes. Yep. And does that mean then that the partners, by going by that model, then have to have more power of their own in order to fit into that particular fictional model? And that brings us to the next temple. So it does. So our third and fanfic temple for this week is a fanfic called In Which Letty Makes Demands by Rivka. And this is a fanfic for Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones. The book, not the movie, uh, which is very briefly a book about a girl called Sophie who goes to live in a wizard's castle and discovers through various means and hijinks that she has magic as well. Uh, And this is set just after the book, and it's actually about Sophie's sister, Letty, who is also a witch. And in the course of the book, this girl, Letty, has various romantic entanglements in which someone who is made up of different pieces of a couple of different men fall in love with her, (laughs) and then at the end of it, she's left in this situation where she kind of wants to learn more magic, but the person who is available to be her teacher is someone who used to have part of him in love with her, but is a different person entirely. So it's a little bit of a tricky, mushy, I'm not quite sure where we stand situation. And this fic is about how Letty goes about deciding what to do about this situation, given that there seems to be an expectation of both romantic and professional entanglement with this person that she's technically never met. And that's another thing that's definitely a theme, particularly in books I feel about young women gaining magic and young women learning to use their magic is entangling a remote uh, a romantic relationship with a mentoring or di- directly teaching relationship. And I'm thinking here about Uprooted. Aren't you always thinking about Uprooted? Yeah, well, you know why, though. Well, it's true. And Uprooted makes a distinction, which Howl's Moving Castle also makes, between the types of magic practiced by men and the types practiced by women. So Uprooted is a male magician trying to teach a woman magic that doesn't work because it's not the right magic for her. And in the Howl's Moving Castle, there is definitely a distinction maybe between wizards and witches and a little bit about the types of magic that they practice as well. But I think in this, this fic specifically explores that idea of mentorship and there must be enough of a similarity that a wizard can teach a witch how to use their magic, but both of the relationships are set up as man of authority gets to teach girl. I feel like in Uprooted, it wasn't intrinsically gender-based, the magic, though, because we definitely get a female um, magic user in the capital whose magic works the way that the dragon's magic works. That's true. I, I think, think I haven't read it for a while. In- it, it was something inherent to like members of like people in the valley, the particular relationship they had with the land there, but I'm just thinking of it as a trend, and as a trend that I really don't love, um, including Veraladane and Nimea in Tamora Pierce's books, if you recall those ones, in which Dane meets Numer when she's, what, like, 15? If that. Which series is this? This is the, the Animal Transformation. Oh, I don't think I read these. No, I read me neither. I think I read the Atlanta books and then heard things about animals and was like, nope. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed them because uh, she did get up to a lot of hijinks and adventures. But there's a thread of, you know, a very young student ends up married to and having children with 
much older teacher. Well, I like that this fic basically turns around and interrogates that idea. Yes. And says, this is where Diana Wynne Jones leaves us. How about it's a bit more complicated than that and let's give this girl some agency to make up her mind as to where she's drawing those lines. Absolutely. Yes. Also, side note, have we tentpulled any Diana Wynne Jones things before? We've done fanfic, I want to say, haven't we? I'm not sure. I don't think In so. any case, it's a crime. It's a crime. We should have tenfold a lot more because Diana Wynne Jones is one of my most favorite authors of all time. We are getting on for around 85 tentpoles if we average three an episode. Jesus. I can't lot. remember what we've tentpoled. I'm sorry. My brain. And also, I am determined to inflict an entire Diana Wynne Jones episode on you guys oh, so God. we can discuss her in depth. I back you up on this. I will be here for that. Tell you what, friendos, you can find another person. Excellent. Well, I am gallivanting, and you can shout about Diana Wynne-Jones. Excellent. We will get a guest to talk about Diana Wynne-Jones. Great. Yeet. That's decided. <laughs> Yay. There we go. Um, so, but let's continue on this episode. Macy because... has a, a fun corner here, I think, right? Oh, yes. I, I mean, I love having corners. So I have a little bit of a theory about the way that certainly Pratchett treats witchcraft versus wizardry which is that for Pratchett, masculine magic is much more similar to scientific method and it's very academic. I think we see this in a lot of fiction about magic. You go to the university of wizardry, right? Yeah. You go, you go sit in classrooms and you are taught facts because right. magic, magic is made of facts, really. Right, and there's like a specific way to do this spell in a specific way that you must do this to get this thing to work, yes. Yes, and you have to like, have... Right. <laughs> Swish and flick, yes. Swish and flick, and exactly. So there's this book that I've been reading because I'm a nerd called Seeing Like a State that's about the ways that trying to classify the natural world can really miss the point. And it has this great terminology that it puts in contrast to scientific method, which is the concept of metis. And metis comes from the Greek odyssey, right? Well, mm -hmm. presumably metis comes from the Greek language, but metis is used frequently in the odyssey to describe how Homer approaches things. Odysseus approaches things. I think you ah. made that scrub last time too. I did. I did last time. Um, Metis is used in the Odyssey to talk about how Odysseus approaches and solves problems. And the idea of Metis is that Metis is any sort of cunning, I think it's frequently it's translated as cunning, but Metis skills are skills that you learn by doing and by intuition, and you couldn't quite tell someone exactly how to do it, right? Yeah, it's sort of like street smarts, like there's an element of like intuition and like feeling it involved, right? Yeah, and I think for me that this is how the witches operate far more than the wizards. Yeah, for sure. I, th I think I would agree with you because like, as far as I can tell, the apprenticeship with the witches in, in Terry Pratchett is very much a like stand next to me and like watch while I do this thing. And so you can sort of mm -hmm. gather your own experience and and make conclusions based on things that you've witnessed before rather than like here are facts and knowledge which are objective truth and will always be true mm, and a lot of emphasis on doing things your own way even if you're not quite yes. sure how to do that yet with like the example of the shambles yes which is one of my favorite things in the tiffany aching which is oh books. tell us about the a shambles. shambles is kind of like a cat's cradle with stuff in it yes. which a witch can use to get a 
kind of spidey sense of what's going on and what could be happening at the moment yeah. and what could happen in the future. And you can use anything that you have in your pockets. But as Pratchett points out, a well-prepared witch probably walks around with several interesting items in their pocket so that they can make a shambles at short notice and something in the shambles has to be living and that's it. Yeah. And so the idea is that you can't really teach someone to make a shambles and there's certainly something in Tiffany's narrative where she has a lot of trouble with it. Like it's just not a piece of magic that works for her. And right. one of the witches eventually ends up being like, oh, shambles, could never get the hang of those. And she's like, oh. Like, it has to actually be brought home to her that not everyone does it the same way and that witchcraft mm -hmm. is very much about whatever works for you, which is where the magic comes from. Yeah. Yes, and I think that a lot of what I see in the workplace is a lot of women saying, oh, I just need to get this thing done and just kind of doing whatever methods it takes to do that thing. And a lot of dudes going around going well i should do this and then that and then that because that's how we achieve the thing and the women are like but that's not gonna solve your problem dude you're gonna have successfully completed those five steps that's cool you still got the problem you started with though. that's some witch witchcraft right there and not in like the, the dismissive kind of way that i often use the word witchcraft uh that's some good <laughs> i was wondering what we were going to get up to mathematics is witchcraft in this episode alex <laughs> always i feel like it goes without saying is wizardry it is wizardry. is wizardry, Alex. That's true, but wizardry sounds like I'm complimenting it. Okay, let me put this in Alex okay. terms, um, which is that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would posit that you can't learn weaving from a book. You can learn it from YouTube and you can learn it from another human, but can you learn it from a book? I would, you're almost right. I would take you to spinning rather than weaving. Because spinning okay. is very much something you have to kind of learn by feeling and just practicing. Mm. And like the first time that you do that. If you've read, by the way, the uh, uh, Circle of Magic series by Tamora Pierce, which I mentioned earlier, that's what got me into fiber arts. Uh, oh, yeah. Because uh, oh, Sandri had a, a drop spindle and I, I read it while we were on vacation. And I was like, I need parents. I need you to take me to a craft store right now to buy a drop spindle. Let's go. <laughs> Bye. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So yeah, like the first string but, that you do is like really lumpy and gross and eventually you learn to do it smoothly and, and finely. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with cooking, which is you have oh, to teach sure. somebody. Cooking is different from doing a recipe. Yes, because you know which things yep. you can change and how much more garlic you can add and that you it's don't really put garlic in an apple pie, that sort of thing. I mean, you could. Yeah. You could. Yeah. <laughs> Well, when it comes to the types Please of don't. magic that you magic systems that you see in books, I'm having a think about what I prefer, and I think I like mm -hmm. magic systems that are like cooking in that there are some basic rules that you have to learn. Like you start off by following the written steps and saying, "Okay, don't put garlic in the apple pie," and you know that because <laughs> you've made an apple pie three times, and at no point has anyone mentioned garlic. <laughs> but after you've done it a few times and you're starting to get the hang of things, then you start thinking, well, I have a feeling that if I add some more cinnamon here, or actually, mm -hmm. what if I wait it in this size instead of this size, maybe I get a different result. And I like magical systems that I think they sort of refer to them as hard versus soft magic sometimes, yeah. but the ones that have an element of rules, because otherwise it's you know, it's boring. You can have a deus ex machina. You can have, you know, things just happening for no reason. So I like it to be a system of firm rules, but for there to be scope for discovery and wonder and intuition within those rules, like learning recipes and then taking it and making up your own stuff. 
I think for me, the distinction that I draw with magic systems is that even the softest, even the most night logic of magic systems has rules, but the difference is how much the users understand them. Yes. Because sometimes the rule is, it's whatever the goddess feels like. And then I get annoyed. Um, and sometimes... Because, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Freya. And sometimes you have something where the magic system is actually, like, super complicated and, like, brings in, like, quantum theory and shit. Yes, I am staring directly at you, Macy. Thank you. Uh, but no one in that setting actually understands quantum theory. And so it appears right. to be soft. Yes. Yes. And I wonder, Freya, if this approach of solving the problem with the tools at hand and kind of learning as you go along might be part of why this works so well with like healing. I see a lot of witches being associated with healing and caretaking and healing magic being frequently a, a women's sphere. Yeah, and I was thinking about this reading the, the Terry Pratchett witches books about the kind of work that is done by the witches. A lot mm -hmm. of it is the sort of thing that you would think of as nursing work. Right. In terms of the, the unglamorous work of chopping someone's toenails because they can't reach them <laughs> and changing the dressings. Uh, but some of it is also country doctoring, essentially. They make mm. a point of the fact that these, these um, country towns often don't have a physician-type doctor who is a man. And so a lot of what they mm. are doing is fairly advanced doctoring, the kind of role that is vanishing really in both the UK and Australia of the single practitioner country doctor who is always on call, who does births, who does deaths, who does farm emergencies. And the reason that's disappearing is because, well, number one, it was a very difficult job that was done by mm. men who were essentially using it as a vocation. Like they didn't really have a choice about getting time off. They would get burned out. And also it was a single man whose entire support system was women usually. Mm -hmm. ah. So the wife would run the surgery and run the household. And that's how you have enough time to be on call 24 seven to be the me the do doctor for a, a town. And as a GP, a lot of what we practice is no longer 24 seven, but it is still very much something that has an element of art as well as science to it. Because a lot of what you are doing as a general practitioner, which is something that does not actually exist in the US, but this particular specialty does exist in Australia and in the UK, mm -hmm. is being the sounding board, doing the emotional labor, dealing with absolutely everything, being the first port of call for everything apart from outright emergencies. And the gender balance of general practitioners definitely skews towards women. How much of that, how much of headology comes into play with that? Oh, a whole bunch. <laughs> I mean, look, it is now illegal to actually inflict the placebo effect on people, which is unfortunate because it's quite effective. It worked so well. <laughs> so I'm no longer allowed to give people sugar pills and tell them that it will cure such and such a thing. Uh, but there is a huge amount of psychology and knowing human nature. And, and some of it is taught, like things like motivational interviewing to help people you know, alter their lifestyle to reduce their risk of chronic disease. But a lot of it is literally to do with the amount of experience you have. And again, it's about you've sat through making an apple pie 10 times. Yeah. You're getting a feel for how you can change, how you can adjust your approach for the individual in front of you. That's all your metis. Very much. There's well, a lot of metis in general practice, which is why I like it. It sounds like it's a lot of women wielding power. Yes. Well, I mean, I would discourage my patients <laughs> yeah. from thinking about it like that. But, you know, <laughs> possibly. Well, of course you would. You're a witch. Of course I would. I'm a Slytherin <laughs> and a witch. Yes. 
speaking of Slytherins and witches, I think that we were going to talk a little bit about the name of this podcast and witches. Where, Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from a play that we're not allowed to name. This is not actually theater. Oh, wait. Did we name it last time and that's why the haunting I happened? I think we did. Oh, right. okay. We're the really Scottish not play. naming the play. The Scottish, the Scottish play. play. Um, so, look as the innocent flower, yet be the serpent under it, says Lady Macbeth, which in context is fine to yes. say. <laughs> um, so the three witches in Shakespeare's Scottish play are kind of the apocryphal witches, really, oh, yeah. right? Like you have those three old crones off in the wilderness making prophecies and stirring things into cauldrons and so forth which and you know the the association of three with witches and specifically old women um wielding prophecy and power takes me back to hecate Mm -hmm. and the the greek witch goddess it's a really really old theme but there's also a lot of christian association right with the old woman and wielding power yeah and i think a lot of that comes back to um like i think our idea of what a witch looks like came or was rooted in the uh witch burnings of the 1400s the um the salem well that wasn't 1400s but like the spanish inquisition uh in the 1400s and then the salem witch trials uh in like the what was it 1600s uh in salem massachusetts the spanish inquisition in the 1400s was very much about the control and punishment of women who didn't fit into the heteropatriarchal capitalist system so it was the midwives who were who were in conflict with the new generation of like university trained doctors who were in conflict with the 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 priests of the catholic church uh as it spread well it's also um women who were walking the countryside uh providing reproductive care to other women providing contraception providing abortificants Mm -hmm. which were not uncommon in the medieval era and providing access to information and support and for example helping women get away from bad situations all of the stuff that was destabilizing men's ability to control their women folk in the way that the christian church of the time felt was the right of men yes and i was listening to a different podcast not our podcast the (laughs) you listen to other podcasts trashy books i know i've been cheating on us with other podcasts plural Alex, you listen to the adventure zone. I do zone. listen Don't to the start. adventure zone. <laughs> I am, I am the only one <laughs> who is a podcast. I amongst purist. us can cast the first stone. But Freya, you were about to say <laughs> something far more intelligent than us. Please continue. As I was she saying, the website Smart Bitches Trashy Books, which is a fantastic resource for anyone interested in the romance genre, they have a long-running podcast called Smart Podcast Trashy Books, <laughs> and. They recently had an episode interviewing an author who was writing a a romance series about a group of women who don't practice magic, but have been a sort Mm. of secret society of preserving wisdom. And there was a quote Mm. from that which I thought was fantastic, which is, autonomy is the original witchcraft. That Mm. what was being reacted against was a woman knowing more than she should, but also Mm -hmm. a woman, exactly as you pointed out, Macy, helping other women or helping people in general who do not have power to both exercise power and to maintain autonomy in situations where the oppressive patriarchy or whomever would not want them to have it. 
you know, I'm actually connecting this back and wondering to what extent the main character of Book of the Unnamed Midwife was kind of this model of a wondering witch. Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. Yeah. But I think that that's a really, really great point um, about autonomy. Because I think that, like I was saying earlier, it feels a lot of the time that power as a woman is something that you have to continually justify and continually fight for. You know, I can't do open source technology because my code will get questioned in a way that a man's won't because they don't believe I have authority with a name like Jennifer. And it's also about what is the right way for a woman to have power. Because mm. you know, these days, I don't think anybody's going to sit there and defend the fact that no one will sit down unless they are very brave and idiotic and say, actually, women can't code and here's why. I'm sure there are people who do say it. But it's oh, more... I've had people defend the Demore memo to my face who mm. are still on my team. But it's also saying, and if you're looking at modern day witch narratives, they can still fall into that trap of saying, what is the right way to be a powerful woman? Mm. We were talking about this a little bit before, but even you do see this idea of good witches versus bad witches. Pratchett does yes. this whole idea of witches going to the bad, which yeah. is about what you know, starting to cackle and starting to build your house out of gingerbread. And it's what happens <laughs> when the amount of power you have corrupts you. But you can stop it by having communities and by having checks and balances. But there is still this idea of a bad witch is someone who is not using their power correctly. The Wizard of Oz has got the good witch who is very good. She's sparkly. She's blonde. She's got, you know, the tinkly wand and she's trying to help. And then you've got bad witches and there's nobody really in the middle and women are very used to being sorted into a dichotomy of, oh, yeah. here's the good one, here's the bad one, here's the yeah. virgin, here's the whore. Well, it's, again, it's witchcraft, Alex. It's the unstable equilibrium. It's the marble balanced on the top of a hill. You can't move a inch to the left or an inch to the right without falling off. Yes. And it's anti-hope punk. Yes. Because you don't get to make mistakes and come back from it. More ambiguously grey witches 2019, please. I God, I'm just like reeling like you don't get to come back. Oh, my God. Because I have made <laughs> mistakes like that so often in my life and like have had people make a sort of unilateral decision about what sort of person I might be based on like one stupid thing that I fucked up. And mm -hmm. it sucks. But that's the world that we live in. It does. But there's a lot of imagery around it in steeped in like the bones of modern fantasy. Um, a lot of people see modern fantasy kind of stemming from Tolkien. I'm not going to count Tolkien right now because he doesn't really have women nope. much. But yeah. let's talk a little bit about Narnia. Oh, yes, very much. Because that there's a clearly labeled witch in that one, the White Witch, oh, uh, yeah. who is framed as the Satan against Aslan's Jesus uh, and who is very much like... Also, like, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, Eden offering, mm -hmm. like, temptations in exchange for her own agenda. Yes, the, the Edmund definitely betrayed his family for quote-unquote Turkish delight. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's a kid's book, Macy. <laughs> yeah, sure it is. Everything's a metaphor. Yes. But... You do get this, um, a woman who has wielded power for too long and with too much strength, particularly for herself, is evil. Yes. Yes. Women can wield power for others and kind of escape 
getting called evil, but if they try to wield it for themselves or for grand ends, I mean, look at how few powerful empresses we have. Mm. I love that you yeah. mentioned the White Witch in the same topic as Lady Macbeth, because ha! when I was in high school, about the age of 12 or 13, there's a thing called Tournament of Minds, which I don't know if you have in America, but it's an Australian thing and it's just a sort of group work creativity. And one of the tasks that my group had was you have to, you're given a list of classics and you had to combine two of the classics to create a new book. And the framing idea was, oh, there are no books in the future. Everything has been passed down orally. One family yeah. has had two texts and they've gotten them confused as the generations have gone. You have to show us what the narrative has become. And we chose oh, Macbeth oh. and The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe because we saw these parallel themes of this woman who is not allowed to hold power. And so we had Aslan had left and there were these twin sisters who were the White Witch and Lady Macbeth who were now fighting for control of the throne. And they each had a man, it was either Edmund or Macbeth, who they sort of like pulled into their sphere and made them go and duel. And they had like rap battles to decide who was going to be the queen <laughs> and they made their men go and have sword fights. It was amazing. We had a great time. That is wonderful. <laughs> that does sound amazing. And you're reminding me of Lady Macbeth's other big speech, the uh, unman me now, that the make of me a man. Yes, because even though... The, because she sees the trap. Yeah, she does. And even though the witches are, you know, the witches of Macbeth, it is also a lot to do with condemning a woman for daring to want power and letting her comment on the fact that her gender is the thing that is that she perceives as standing in her way and that everybody else perceives mm -hmm. as standing in her way. But it doesn't interrogate it quite enough. It's still a play that says, here is a powerful woman, she must die, and she's going to go crazy because right. of how powerful she is, which is not a yep. great message. It, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not the best message, no, one will admit. But I was also thinking when we're talking about the witches of Macbeth and they're kind of grubby and grimy and out in the swamp, I was thinking of this recent trend towards horror witches and the Sabrina remake, where they really get to wield their power and, you know, hurt people. Um, and I wonder if this is reaction to this, like, purity, the white witch. What's the sitcom I'm thinking of with the domestic witch in it? Bewitched. Be Bewitched. Is it? Okay. That was the old, that, that's the oldest one. That's oh, like yeah. a very old. And, and yeah, if you're thinking about it as like very domestic, it's a very safe way of a woman having power because I haven't seen Bewitched. I just know a bit about the setup, but it's very much she's married, she has a partner, um, and but her partner is still the one who has the power of the man in the household. So she's mm -hmm. allowed to wield her witch power because it's seen as kind of a fun hobby, like having right. dinner parties. One of the things that I really loved, Freya, about your book that I've just been reading is that you have this beautiful magic that is very much um, individual to the person, but that the servants wield it entirely differently and in the service of just keeping the house, which I thought was a great kind of model, right, of how magic varies based on your position in society. And women's magic also is very different, but there were like... It's basically intersectionality theory, right? It really is. And when I was coming up with the magic system, I wanted it to reflect to a certain extent the Edwardian class system in which mm -hmm. it is being 
portrayed in that men are considered worth educating, women aren't. So we're only right. just entering a phase in England among magic users where women are allowed to be educated. And it kind of depends on your family, which is exactly how it was for the education of women in the late Victorian age. Whether mm -hmm. or not a woman could be given an education depended on essentially how liberal her parents were. Mm -hmm. um, and whether they were prepared to spend money on, on her education as you had this emergence of the suffragette movement. And so I wanted a magic that has been a little bit stifled by the system that has grown up around it. And some of the characters who don't necessarily appear predominantly in the book, but are in the background, are a group of women in the, from the Victorian age who reacted against that by essentially saying, well, if no one's going to teach us, we'll try and work it out from first principles. And they came up with something completely different. Which is entirely metis, right? Yes, yes, for sure. And they probably you know, would have, they put rules around their own magic, but the way they came up with it um, basically was a way of breaking down the belief among the men who are the magicians in England <laughs> that this is the way you do magic. And there's mention that different cultures do it differently. But I wanted to play with this idea that magic is something that has been shaped by the society that has been using it. And people can break free of their assumptions, but you have to stop using it in the very structured way you've been told to do it your whole life. I think that that's, for me, the biggest thing about magic in books and fantasy books. One of my biggest world-building criticisms is when your society has clearly not been affected by the shape of the magic that you have, right? If your magic is a big part of your society, mm -hmm. which uh, one of the things I know, Alex, that you do a lot is the magic isn't a big part of the society, which is also super fun and cool. Yeah, I like to have really like low instances of magic because otherwise it fucks with the economy too much. Right. <laughs> that's that's entirely fair. Whereas I love fucking with the economy. So um, something that another interesting sort of angle to come at witches is what about the boy witches? Uh, I think, oh. Macy, you were recently telling me about a uh, Check, Please fanfic. Yes. Is oh, that right? yes, that's a great one. And anybody who enjoyed uh, A Practical Magic would have a whale of a time with this one, which I can totally remember the title of because it's listed somewhere. Fuck. Uh you didn't list it on the doc points. You just had the practical magic slash check please mashup, which we can send the scribes to go find. Yes, we will dispatch the scribes to find you the title because my brain has gone blank. Um, but Sorry, there is this gorgeous check please mashup with practical magic in which Eric Bittle, who in the canon of check please is a very, in some ways, stereotypical uh, gay boy. Um, he loves cooking, he is always cheerful and dancing around and is quite twee at He's times. also very southern is the thing as well. That's, yes. In this mashup, he is one of the magic family, the, the witches whose partners always die. And there's this pattern recently that I'm quite interested in about reclaiming witchcraft in the name of queer folks in general. And I'm kind of of two minds about men and being witches. There's a there's a middle grade graphic novel, which I haven't read, but it's been on my list for a while, called The Witch Boy by Molly mm -hmm. Ostertag. And just from looking at the blurb, it seems to be coming at this idea of a male witch from a, a place of interrogating toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. So the basic rundown of that is that it's about a 13-year-old boy whose family, the 
girls in the family are all witches and the boys are all shapeshifters and that's the way it's been um but he has not shown any shapeshifting power and he is fascinated by the idea of being a witch uh, and that's that's just the setup i haven't read it as i said but i think if you're coming at the idea of you know can boys be witches it's more about the whole setup of the dichotomy of who can have this type of power is damaging to everyone so it's coming at it from the feminist perspective of the patriarchy hurts boys too that's that's interesting i'm also thinking of pratchett's um single female wizard was that equal rights that he did that in yes. i believe so yes yeah. escarina because pratchett does make a point of like some people's powers just don't fit in the boxes that society thinks that they should um, I think that for me, witchcraft is so shaped by wielding power at a disadvantage mm-hmm. that I'm, I can get by with uh, queer boys wielding magic. If you give me a straight boy and call him a witch, I'm going to have Your eye's going to twitch. Your eye is going to twitch a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, because that it's a little bit like it's not cross-dressing when girls wear boys' clothes. Like... Well, anybody can be a wizard. Let's redefine briefly, not just a straight boy, but a straight white cis boy. Yes, exactly. Someone who is not systematically disadvantaged in by how they are viewed in that way. But I do love some of the pieces of art that are coming out of this Mm -hmm. reimagining, particularly the Corner Witch comics. Oh, the Corner Witch is so good. Have you guys seen those? I've seen a couple of them, yeah. And it's just this this really cute uh, story about a witch um, falling in love because of course. Yeah. Uh, I think I would agree. I think if we're talking about the origins of the idea of witchcraft in autonomy mm-hmm. for those who were told they shouldn't have it. Oh, that's a great way to frame that. Then that's that, a much neater way of framing that, I think. Yeah, and I can see then where you're coming from with this idea that to claim the identity of a witch, it's in part of it. Part of that identity is reactive. It's about saying I'm fighting against some kind of oppression of either myself or the people I'm acting on behalf of. So our episode is running a little bit long, so we do have to say farewell, listeners. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? No, Macy, in two two weeks. weeks. Two weeks hence, Macy. Come on. for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. Man, I swear, it was the Scottish play that cursed us. Freya actually did mention it by name during the episode, if you caught that, and when we closed out and went to save, she had some audio missing. Thank fuck it was only a tiny sliver this time. Anyway, we appreciate your forbearance with the reshuffling, and hope that the witches round two, Witchmageddon, will be as much fun for y'all to listen to as it was to record. Meanwhile, we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on February 13th, we'll be posting a world-building episode with a focus on gender and relationships. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tent poles for that episode is J.Y. Yang's novella, The Black Tides of Heaven. So, if you have a friend who is into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. With questions, comments, breathless adulations, contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com. 
at SerpentCast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation on our fan Discord, which is linked on the About the Show page of our website. And do remember, we are taking questions for our extravaganza, so feel free to give us some of those as well if you feel like it. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to review us on iTunes. And by the way, you have great taste in familiars. I bet ours would get along.